Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. Boris Johnson has officially become Prime Minister, so what can we expect from his first 100 days? And with the Gulf situation hotting up, what should Britain's policy towards Iran be? And finally, I interview a historian who kayaked the length of the UK and Ireland within a year. And so first, Boris Johnson has become Prime Minister and cemented his power with a strong group of loyalists within hours of entering Downing Street. In his cover article this week, James Forsyth argues that Boris has to hit the ground running and if public opinion is on his side, then he might just about overcome Parliament to get his ideal Brexit outcome. James joins me now together with Conservative MP Simon Hart, who founded the Pragmatic Brexit Delivery Group to support leaving the EU with a deal, but supported Boris Johnson's leadership campaign. So James, what would you say the first 100 days hold in store for Boris Johnson? Is there an election in those next few months? I think they are make or break for Boris Johnson. I think the chances of an election are increasing by the day because if you look at how Boris Johnson is behaving, this is someone who is wants to be ready for an election at any moment. I thought his speech in Downing Street was attempts to basically deal with the big electoral vulnerabilities that cost the Tories their majority in 2017. So he's going to come out of a plan for social care. He's got a school funding plan. He's going to do more animal welfare stuff, e.g. no repeat of the fox hunting thing from 2017, and you know more money for the NHS. And then you know Brexit is going to be layered on top of that. I think that you can see. And I think if you look at the reshuffle he conducted last night, that wasn't a reshuffle that was designed to placate each and every faction in the Conservative Party. That was a reshuffle about getting a government where everyone is committed to the UK leaving the EU on October 31st, come what may. And I thought, in another sign that he is getting ready for an election, in every job where he basically had to pick between a good media performer and a technocrat, he went for the media performer rather than the technocrat. Simon, are you preparing to go back to your constituency over the summer and prepare for war? Well, I mean, I suppose in a, in a marginal seat, you're always slightly in that situation anyway. And I agree with much of what James has said. The only question mark I would attach to it is how, what, what process would Boris have to follow in order to reach the moment where an election is the only obvious way forward? As far as I can see, there are only two options. You, you, you fall into it by way of a no-confidence vote, and that would look very messy in the first few weeks of his new administration. On the other, he orchestrated himself, and he breaches the Fixed-Term Parliament Act in order to do that, he's going to have to really move and get all of this in place before October the 31st. That would be quite a strange thing to do as well. I think there's one other scenario, which is that Parliament finds a way somehow to legislate for an extension. And Boris Johnson says, I won't do that. And you then get the confidence vote. And he then says, I have been brought down because I tried to deliver Brexit. And we're now going to have a general election on whether we have Brexit or not. I think you could see that as an alternative. Which, of course, was exactly the argument that the centrist part of Parliament and the party made back in March when we approached that first deadline, if you remember, we were going to leave on March 29th. And everybody says, if you miss this opportunity, if the um, ERG and others bring this opportunity down, you not only risk Brexit, but you actually risk the lifespan of a Conservative government. And if what you're saying is right, and we go into an election on the back of that scenario, then that we're in unbelievably high-risk territory because it does not automatically follow that we would canter to a comfortable victory uh, in that election. Simon, you've changed your opinion of of Boris Johnson as well over the past year or so. I think you wrote uh, about this time last year 
that Boris Johnson was devious, self-indulgent and incompetent. Uh, but you also supported him during this leadership campaign. So are these, uh, these I, qualities I that you sort of find really attractive no, about? I really have no recollection of... Uh, right, I, 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 but even if... Let's, let's surmise for a moment that maybe I thought that. And funny, when I talked to Boris at the beginning of the campaign, I, I did actually say to him, well, I, you know, I have been sort of reasonably rude about you. I didn't realise I'd been that rude. I don't think he did either, by the way, but over that period of time. And But when it came to making a judgment about who to support in the election coming up, I mean, we, we just had to, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was, it was a really easy choice. I mean, you had to look for the person who was most likely in these dreadful circumstances that we're in to be able to win an election on the back of having delivered an orderly Brexit. So whatever I might have said, whatever anybody else might have said, actually, in the end, if there is anybody left in Parliament who can pull off a miracle, it is probably him. James, do you agree that, that Boris Johnson is probably the, the one person in the Conservative Party at the moment? I mean, obviously, he's the Prime Minister, so he doesn't have much choice. But I think Boris Johnson is pursuing a kind of outside-in strategy. I think his plan is to use the public to put pressure on MPs. And essentially, I think his hope is that he can establish, a get a big bounce in the opinion polls, at which point... MPs become much more reluctant to throw obstacles up in his way and force a general election because they think that general election would result in him winning a majority anyway. And I think, again, if you look at that cabinet reshuffle and his rhetoric on Brexit, it's all quite designed to pull votes back from the Brexit party. And I think one of the other cases for Boris Johnson is that, I mean, all politicians thrive on the oxygen of publicity, but Nigel Farage and Jeremy Corbyn in particular. And I think what we're going to see over the next 100 days is this is going to be the Boris Johnson show. That, you know, it is going to be, for, for good or ill, this is all going to be about him. And I think that will pose some problems for the other parties because how do you get traction when he is such the dominant force? Now, the Lib Dems' plan is to run as the anti-Boris Johnson party, but I think, think I think, but I think for Nigel Farage and the Brexit party in particular, it will be quite tricky because they won't want to be the anti-Boris Johnson party because he'll be saying lots of stuff about Brexit that their voters agree with. And I think he will be crowding them out of the picture. I mean, Simon can't remember what he wrote last year, but but I think I can remember us saying something pretty similar about Theresa May when she came in and was heading for the 2017 elections. That it was going to be all about her because everyone loved her. Didn't work that well, did it, Simon? You helpfully prompted me while we were listening to James as to what I did say. And I was quite relieved when I read that because it actually, I was making a, a general comment about You're saying colleagues. everyone was devious. Uh, I, I, was, I was saying that's how we came across. As a, as, a, as a group of people, that's how we came across. I'm mightily relieved that I wasn't singling out the new and much-respected Prime Minister for that particular just, expression. Just in case anyone... Just, keep just, your phone I just on, want yeah. to. I just want to absolutely, absolutely clear. I don't think they'll be listening to me anyway. But I, I think the, the, the other thing about Boris Johnson, I, I think that you, we can make a distinction with Theresa May here. And you were right that back, back in 2017, she was seen as sensible, reliable, steady under fire, all of those sort of things that we yearn for in a uh, political leader. But as the situation became worse and as Brexit was, you know, eroding confidence in Parliament and, and in individual MPs, so the need for something really different became uh, apparent. And I think that or any MP you talk to, any one of 650s will tell you that whether people love or hate Boris Johnson, whatever their views may be in relation to his sort of stance on certain subjects, he is still the person who will fill a town hall, will, people will come out and speak to, will want to come up and talk to with, argue, contest, 
he still, and there were very few people to do that. And we saw that on the hustings. I mean, Jeremy Hunt was an incredibly competent, sensible, nice, humane, decent person. But people didn't want to crowd round him in Bewdley High Street in the way that they did Boris. Everybody wants a bit of Boris. And when it comes to an election, the ability to turn heads and to generate debate in quite an old-fashioned way is, I think, going to you know, blow the Lib Dems out of the way. I, think that, I, I don't think they're going to get a look in when it comes to that moment. It's fair to say that, that Boris Johnson is a very experienced campaigner, even those who haven't particularly liked him are always quite keen to get him out on the campaign trail. But James, you say in your piece in the magazine this week that he's not the most experienced minister, parliamentarian. He's not, he hasn't got great experience at the dispatch box. Is this going to be a problem for him? I mean, this is why you're going to see him running this outside... I mean, it's going to be a very odd situation where you're going to have the Prime Minister essentially is going to be the campaigner-in-chief. And I think this is his plan, is essentially other people are going to do the governing stuff and he is going to be the front man for the government pushing its message forward, but in the kind of big picture terms. I don't think he is going to try. Theresa May always wanted to be across the detail in every department. And she prided herself on the fact that if someone popped up and asked her a question about something that was happening, you know, with crop rotation rules, that she would know what, what the answer was. I think Boris Johnson, I think you saw this in the chamber today, he isn't going to bother to pretend, but he knows the answer to all these things. And I, I, yeah, I think that's incredibly refreshing. Is that actually? And, and I think he is going to be a, the, the tip of the Tory spear, essentially. He is going to try and run this kind of campaigning strategy, you know, winning and essentially in a way winning a mandate every day by going to the public and i think there's a, there is a big question here which is can that actually work as a governing strategy and i think you saw a fascinating recognition from boris johnson but he's going to need help but who is the person he's decided to put in charge of no deal planning which is probably the most important thing that his government is doing michael gove and when you consider the personal history between those two that is a quite remarkable admission from Boris Johnson that he does actually need some other people to do the governing bits of it for him. And, and, and let's not forget on that uh, sort of PM experiencing too, both Tony Blair and David Cameron um, had no experience in government at all before they became Prime Minister. Indeed, they only ever held one role in government, that was a Prime Minister, in opposition difference. So I think the fact that, uh, and, and they both had huge campaigning zeal, and, and real presence were able to do exactly, I think, what Boris Johnson is trying to replicate now. So I'm not worried by that. And in fact, I think there's a bit of an appetite for something a little bit different, a little bit uh, more uh, edgy than perhaps we became used to with Theresa. Thanks, James and Simon. Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk Next, tensions in the Gulf are hotting up as Iran continues to detain one of the British oil tankers it seized last week. How should the West navigate these Iranian provocations? American professor Andrew Basevich advises caution in this week's magazine and to discuss I'm joined by the defence editor of The Telegraph, Con Cochlin, and head of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House, Lena Khatib. 
So, Con, does the UK have a coherent and consistent policy on Iran? I think it does have a policy. Whether it's coherent or not is, is, a, is a matter for debate. The policy of the British government is to maintain support for the JCPOA, the nuclear deal that the world's major powers signed with Tehran in 2015. And it seems wedded to that policy, irrespective of all the other dynamics that are being applied to that agreement. I mean, the reason, in my view, that we find ourselves in the current position is that when the deal was signed, there was an expectation that this would encourage Iran to adopt a more constructive relationship in its dealings with the outside world, particularly with all the money it received with the sanctions being lifted. And we've seen the opposite. We've seen Iran embark on military adventurism in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq, consolidating its forces with Hezbollah, etc. And so that, that to my mind, has is, is led to the, the current standoff between Washington and Tehran. But in spite of all that, we are sticking very much to the deal because, in our view, it delays Iran's nuclear activities for a few years and gives us some breathing space. But I don't, I don't think it's a, it's, a, it's a very tenable position myself. Lena, do you think the UK government has been caught on the hop by this latest crisis? Well, I think what we're witnessing today is one of the major repercussions of the deal because the deal was a good thing. However, it was not sufficient in my view. I think the U.S. in particular under the Obama administration was rather short-sighted when that deal was formulated. In a way, the Iran, Iran's nuclear program was selected as being the most threatening aspect of Iran's behavior in the Middle East. And this meant that the U.S. turned a blind eye at that time to Iran's adventurism in the region and to its ballistic missile program and all the other things that Iran was doing, including its intervention in Syria. At that time, I was one of the people advocating for a package deal that would include the nuclear issue, but negotiate with Iran on these other issues as well. But there was no appetite for that in Washington at that time. And basically, this gave Iran the green light to feel that if the world only cares about the nuclear deal, then it must be okay for it to continue doing everything everything else without fearing repercussions. And now we're finding ourselves in this position in which the nuclear deal appears to be unraveling while Iran's adventurism has grown. Iran today is involved in more countries in the Middle East than it ever has in its 40-something year history since the Islamic Revolution of 79. And Con, how much of this is also the UK feeling torn between the US and the EU and feeling uncomfortable about its relationship with Donald Trump, for instance, and also uncomfortable about how it works with the EU, given it's trying to work out how to leave the EU at the same time? Well, I think from, from my understanding of the history of our involvement with the nuclear deal, the Foreign Office has an emotional attachment to the nuclear deal, as do the key European Union policymakers. If you look at the, the, the origins of the deal, it came at a time when the Iraq invasion had gone sour. And people like Jack Straw, who's just written a book about Iran, basically said, 
there's another way of dealing with road states, difficult states, challenging states, the military invasions. Well, show the then Bush administration that we can negotiate a deal with Iran. And that went on for, for a decade until the Obama administration came in and gave it a bit of life. So when you look at our, our involvement, it, it is this feeling that you know, we, we helped get this deal done. It wasn't the Americans. We got the ball rolling and, and we're going to stick with it. And as you say, Isabel, there's this added dimension that at a time when we're sort of juggling our future relationship with Europe, with Brexit, that we want to maintain the alliance with Germany and France, the other main powers that helped negotiate the deal, come what may. But the the pressure from Washington now, particularly in terms of the economic pressure on Iran, is very intense. And the Europeans have gone down this rabbit hole of trying to set up a regulatory framework that will protect European businesses if they continue to deal with Iran against US punitive measures. But this is going nowhere as well. All the big major multinationals like Airbus have voted with their balance sheets and decided they prefer to do business with America than a bank, an economic basket case like Iran. And so, as you say, Isabel, we, we are caught twixt and tween. And I do hope that the new government that we, we will see emerge in the next few days will have a far more realistic and robust approach to this and, A, start to align ourselves with, with Washington. Just picking up on what Lena was saying, I mean, it's quite important, this, that what the Trump administration is doing is trying to get a better deal. And as Lena says, the original deal was very flawed. Uh, we do need to get back to Geneva and negotiate a deal that encompasses all aspects of Iran's nuclear activities rather than the very narrow issue of uranium enrichment. Lena, how effective do you think the European-led mission that was announced by Jeremy Hunt earlier this week can actually be? If you're talking about the arrangement about maritime security that Jeremy Hunt announced, which involves working with European countries to secure maritime movement in the Strait of Hormuz, Iran has already announced that it rejects this kind of arrangement because it sees itself as the custodian of that part of the world. And of course, Iran denies that it has engaged in any bad behavior. Unfortunately, I don't think this arrangement on its own is going to work. The United States needs to be involved in this because Iran, it seems to me, feels that it can play European countries because they seem so keen to keep the nuclear deal alive. So in a way, Iran feels it can continue to push as much as it can, knowing that they will do whatever they are able to to keep the deal alive and therefore will always try to find ways to kind of come to terms with Iran's skirmishes in the Strait of Hormuz, for example, because they don't want to push things too far. So I think Iran needs to be sent a strong message and cooperating with Washington on maritime security is one way of doing that. Con, what do you think the British government should be doing? Well, I agree entirely with Lena, actually. I think, I think when you look at the capabilities of the European navies, you're really just talking about the French, and the French have a, a tendency to do their own thing, whatever the military operation. But there aren't any other navies that are really worth discussing in terms of taking a robust response to Iran. 
And I just find it incomprehensible, frankly, that Theresa May and Jeremy Hunt have eschewed the offer from the Trump administration to help protect British shipping in the Gulf. And when you look at the the, the run-up to the seizure of the tanker uh, last week, our failure to engage properly with the Americans has led to this humiliation. So, as I say, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the Johnson government getting a grip both on the transatlantic relationship and our, our working relationship with the American military, and also taking a, a different approach to our dealings with Iran. Leona, do you think Boris Johnson and those around him have given signals that they are likely to get a grip? I think the UK has no choice but to move closer to Washington on the Iranian issue. And I think we are already heading in that direction even before uh, Boris Johnson became prime minister. We, for example, saw the UK designate the political wing of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. This is a step that is very much in line with Washington policy and was taken in order to allow the financial tracking of transactions by individuals and organizations affiliated with this group. And it's all part of Washington's maximum pressure policy on Iran. So the UK is already heading in that direction. But I think the UK at the same time is torn because of its commitment to the nuclear deal. I personally think with the corporations voting with their bank balances away from the deal, the nuclear deal is on its way to being unraveled. And so this is a moment for the UK to be more decisive about how to deal with Iran overall, rather than to try to kind of keep this middle ground, because obviously this middle ground is getting us nowhere. And Con, do you agree with the point that Basevich makes in his piece that US foreign policy on Iran is largely driven by the interests of Saudi Arabia and Israel, which are its allies and which are also very hawkish on Iran? I think there's a degree of truth in that. And when you look at the involvement of people like John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, in the whole Iran brief in Washington, he's known to have particularly close relations with Israel. And, of course, the Trump administration wants to support the Saudi regime under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But I also think that the Republican Party has been very critical of the nuclear deal for the reasons that Lena outlined earlier. So there is a great groundswell of opinion in America that is anti the deal. And the fact that the Saudis and the Israelis are also kicking up about it gives, gives it added momentum in Washington. Now, Lena, the question that, that everyone who is not following this particularly closely is asking is, are we about to go to war? We're not about to go to war. Neither the United States nor Iran want to go to war. My own conversations with the U.S. administration in Washington about this were, you know, were clear. No one there feels that war is the right way to pressure Iran. Diplomacy and economic pressure are the chosen path in Washington. And I think this is where things are heading. We have to remember that despite all the skirmishes happening in the Strait of Hormuz and and elsewhere, Iran has been very careful not to cross a red line, not to push things too far. And the US is the same. I think we're seeing a lot of posturing on both sides, because if you're going to enter a negotiation, then it's in the interest of the negotiating parties to be in as strong a position as possible 
versus the other before the negotiations start so that they could maximize what they could get from the negotiations. So this is where we are at the moment. But I don't think we're about to see war break out, at least not deliberately. Con, is there not a risk that, as Lena says, that war breaks out not deliberately, that the posturing goes too far and that accidentally we move into another phase? Well, I think I think there's there's a strong possibility we might end up with some form of military conflict, whether it's all-out wars and other matter. The, some of the Iranian actions have been very provocative, shooting down the U.S. Navy drone in international waters, what it did with the British tanker, firing missiles at U.S. positions in southern Iraq, attacking Saudi pipelines, attacking other tankers. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard is clearly agitating to cause trouble. And so long as they're on that trajectory, the the possibility of the Americans in particular saying enough is enough. And we saw this after the drone was shot down. I mean, we now know the Trump administration came within an hour of launching a, a pretty robust military response against Iranian positions. And if that were to happen, the Iranians would would respond and we could quickly have quite a serious military escalation. Having said that, I think I agree with Lena. I don't think Washington or Tehran wants this. But so, so long as the Revolutionary Guard are on this trajectory, that possibility must remain quite high. Thanks, Con and Lena. And last, with a heatwave blanketing the country, who doesn't wish they were by the seaside? Well, historian David Gange spent a year travelling the length of our nation's coasts from its northernmost in the Shetland Islands all the way south to Land's End in Cornwall. And all of this in a kayak. His book, The Frayed Atlantic's Edge, recounts his journey and the cultures, histories and landscapes he encounters along the way. Casper Henderson reviews the book in this week's issue and I'm pleased to say that David joins me now. David, you're a historian, but your book isn't a usual kind of history book in that you didn't really research it in a dusty library, did you? Tell us about it. So for the book, I wanted to try and see what happened if you imagined British history from an Atlantic perspective, from those Atlantic coastlines, and realised very quickly that the University of Birmingham wasn't the best place to do that from. And decided that it the being best... famous for its coastlines, obviously. Well, it's kind of equally distant from them all, so it's... Not too ridiculous, maybe. But, yeah, I I wanted to find a way of getting access to perspectives from Atlantic communities, of getting myself to all the different archives along those coastlines, and decided that the best way to do that would be to jump in a boat and kayak them all. Are you a kayaker? Was this a new skill for you? So I've been kayaking for about 10 years. My ex-partner is a Paralympic kayaker, so... I have lots of guidance and inspiration from her. So you weren't worried that you were just going to end up doing what most beginning kayakers do and end up going in a circle rather than actually managing to go <laughs> along the coastline? I mainly managed to go in straight lines. I did almost give up on the first day. What happened? So I'd headed out from a big um, vogue called Burrafirth in the north of Shetland out to a little rock called Outstack, which is the northernmost point in the British Isles, on the most beautifully calm day. It was an absolutely perfect day to set off. But then I turned around the headland into these big tidal areas with thousands of gannets diving and minke whales rising from the water and just hit this huge wall of tidal overfalls. Knocked over twice within the first hour and having had to roll so that I felt like I'd been through this vast washing machine by lunchtime on the first day. 
and realising that that had happened on the most benign day imaginable made me seriously rethink whether, whether I could do this at all. Fortunately, I didn't have to roll again for another five months. And it was, it was just a kind of expression of the immensity of those North Shetland cliffs that had done that rather than kind of real danger all the way. And was it plain kayaking from then on? Mostly. I mean, I, feel, I felt like a total fraud for the first month or so because... It happened to be the year in recent memory when the winds have been lowest, when there's been least rain, most sunshine. So for most of that first month through Shetland, my biggest danger was like a bit of sunburn on the ears or something like that. And I felt like I was sat on an armchair at sea after spending months telling everyone I know just how dangerous Shetland would be. So yeah, I was incredibly lucky that conditions aligned for me to be able to do it. You did come into contact with a whale, though, at one point, which doesn't sound entirely safe. So that was that was an absolutely glorious moment in the end. Like many wonderful moments, it was one of those ones where you tell yourself that if you get through it, you'll never get in a kayak again. But then in hindsight, is absolutely wonderful. So I've been watching minke whales rise, and their their habit is to is to come up two or three times, about kind of five or ten seconds apart, and usually about forty feet apart, and then to dive for five minutes. And I'd been watching them do that, and then all of a sudden saw out of the corner of my eye this minky whale rise about 40 feet behind me and realised that as soon as it rose again, about five seconds later, it would probably be right under the boat. So I got my paddle in one hand, camera in the other, and the minky whale rose about kind of six feet to my right. I got one photo of its fin rise as as it made its kind of last arc, and then a huge slosh of water off its back just swept me sideways and I just about managed to hold on to to paddle and camera so I did end up having the photo. So tell us about some of the poets and authors who you reference in your book as well because it's not just about the wildlife and uh, and the water but it's about the history and the people of the coastline as well. Absolutely. So these are these are regions that have a very different history in terms of how they've been recorded in terms of who has kind of sustained their memory and even though poetry used to be much more important through the whole of the British Isles these Atlantic regions are ones where a kind of oral tradition survived longer and where poets often illiterate were the people who sustained that. So they've also kept a much more lively current tradition of poetry. I mean, Shetland, I think, is the best example of that, where there are wonderful poets like Jen Hadfield, Donald Murray, Christine De Luca, Roseanne Watt, Jim Mainland, could go on forever with the list of wonderful Shetland poets. And there's something about the way in which poets treat the shoreline, looking in real detail, often trying to reread histories that historians have got wrong that is absolutely wonderful so Christine Evans on Bardsey is a great example of that she she's writing on an island that had been kind of exoticized and treated as this kind of bizarre backwards place for centuries a place that supposedly has the graves of 20,000 saints on it so always associated with death and always associated with a kind of venerable past that's really overbearing to the present. And Evans, over a whole career, has just written gloriously observed poems about the small community on the island, about the kind of wildlife, about the landscape, all of which kind of reread this island as a place of rebirth, a place of growth, a place with really important histories, but not these kind of marginal, remote ones that 19th century journalists had imposed on it. Um, so her poetry is definitely the best way to understand the island. And you talk a lot about the Gallic revival that's taking place in the area over the past few decades. What, why has that happened? So there are, there are lots of reasons that 
the languages of the Atlantic coastlines have undergone such a revival recently. Some of them are just quite basic functional things to do with changes in local government. So the Western Isles Council was created in the 70s after the Western Isles used to be governed from Dingwall and Inverness. So there's now a sense in which the islands can kind of govern their own destiny in, to some extent. But the main thing, I think, is the way in which technology's worked. So from about 1770 to about 1970, all the major technologies invented worked against islands. So all things to do with road, rail, all kind of steamships that kind of enabled long-distance travel. Most of these things moved transport off the kind of coastal sea roads and into the centre of land masses. And it's only since the 1970s that new technologies have managed to undo some of that. So for, for about two centuries, places that had once been central to life in Britain and Ireland began to seem remote. And it's only with kind of fast broadband allowing kind of small crafts and publishers and everything else to flourish in the islands that a lot of that is undone and economies can revive at the same time as poets, historians, create this new sense of dignity for the cultures of, of those islands. So that's a positive thing for the culture, but, but you're not wholly positive because you talk about climate change and you say that these coastline communities are at the front line of climate collapse. Just explain what that looks like. Absolutely. So contrary to this strange misconception that coasts are somehow permanent, which even people like Seamus Heaney fall into treating a kind of permanent Atlantic beating permanent cliffs. They're the most transitory part of our landscapes. They are extremely delicate, so lots of the farming practices on these coastlines, like the way in which crofters have treated the wonderful kind of grasslands, floral kind of macaire of, of the Western Isles, any change from those old traditions into kind of more modern farming practices can destroy them. So a move to intensive techniques, you're saying? Yeah, just any kind of chemical interference with how those grasslands operate. Anything that stops them being held together by the roots of the kind of diverse plants that are there, anything that tries to impose a monoculture, that can be deeply damaging. So it's one way in which history is really important in those islands, recovering the ways in which they were used in the past, which are ways that can work for the future, rather than operating in terms of these extremely present focused modes. And it, it, that's a real trade-off though presumably for those crofters, for farmers, because there are lower yields involved or am I incorrect there? There are lower yields involved but there are also lots of ways in which um, kind of subsidies can be gained, in which, in which the crofters can work for other things other than just production. So for instance re the return of corn crakes to those regions, something yeah, those kinds of biodiversity initiatives are ones that can help farmers, both crofters, fit into communities and also gain income. And finally, at one point in your journey, you got out of the kayak and you went cold water swimming. Now, I'm, I'm a cold water swimmer myself, so I want to know what was it like to swim in the sea rather than paddling on top of it? Was it better? Because I presume it was. <laughs> Did I ever do this deliberately or only ever by accident? <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I really like to do is when there are things like basking sharks close or pods of dolphins to just flip myself over so that I can I have a little plastic mask that I can put on and if I flip myself over I can watch them move through the water in their own element which is wonderful. There were a couple of times I did end up swimming around like off Hander Island in the sea in November. That was, what was that like? Oh, 
that was that was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Was that the um, currents rather than the temperature of the water, presumably? I, it was the water temperature too. I, I was absolutely <laughs> freezing. So I think I was I was in the water for quite a long time at that point. I had to swim quite a long way, pushing my kayak along through really really rough water. But then when I was finally pushed ashore, feeling ridiculously cold and shaky, there were just a pair of sea eagles on the shore, just kind of interacting in really interesting ways and suddenly that just made me feel considerably warmer and less kind of full of despair than I had just a few minutes earlier. Oh that's a lovely note to end it on. And that's all for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode as well as Martin Howe QC on Boris's Brexit plan and Paul Dacre's diary. If you subscribe to the magazine via spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher we'll even throw in a £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.